Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. A lot of what we talk about, Larry, has to do with what you've written, and it might be kind of interesting to talk about your first published work today called Row Hard, No Excuses. And uh, this goes back a few years, but we'd love to hear the story behind it. Yeah, it goes back to 1998, actually, Jordan, and that was um, Row Hard, No Excuses was my first attempt at writing. What happened is my longtime secretary, Kathy Janess, I might have spoken about her before. She was an absolutely wonderful person and a great, uh, more than a secretary, really a legal assistant, better than even a paralegal. She's a wonderful lady, and I still know her very well. I first knew her when when she was 19, and now she's retired from her job after the job she held with me for a quarter of a century. And her husband, Mike Janess, a longtime police officer, now retired. And uh, Mike was into uh, building boats with his father. And uh, they decided that they were going to go to England and compete in the gig racing championships over there um, on the Isles of Scilly. The Isles of Scilly are off Land's End in England, down near Penzance and uh, Cornwall. And we, when we got there, we had to fly out on a helicopter. I thought that would be my last plane ride ever uh, <laughs> because the weather affects the, that part of England sure. quite a bit. And it's a tough area as far as weather is concerned, but beautiful and rugged. And uh, it's all about the sea down there. So anyway, uh, Kathy comes into my office and she said, can I take a week off? I said, sure. What, what are you going to do? She said, well, uh, Mike and I, that Mike was uh, Mike Janess her husband, and a big, rugged, handsome guy who used to play the line for Northeastern. Uh, we're, we're going on a trip to, uh, to what I, where I just told you about on the Silly Owl. So I said, uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know whether I said it at that moment, but I think I did say it at that moment. I said, you know, Kathy, that sounds like a really fascinating trip. I mean, do you think that, uh, could you ask Mike, could I come along? And so the answer came back, sure, come along. Well, that turned out to be one of the great trips of my life uh, and very adventurous. And uh, I went over there. And the gig racing championships, gigs, first of all, are open boats with, I think, six or eight rowers in them and a and a, somebody to uh, guide the boat in the back, uh, coxswain, I guess you call mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it's a very exciting type of racing. Um, actually, these gigs were uh, previously used by guys going out to help the ships passing by navigate the shoals and uh, that were that are extant in that part of, in the Silly Isles. So uh, they have a long history. And then sometimes uh, when boats uh, when ships foundered, they would take these boats out and. Uh, uh, and, and a lot of the uh, uh, cargo got distributed on the shore. They would they would take these boats out and either take the the cargo off the ship or collect it on the shore. I guess that's called moon cussing or something like that. Uh, so that the, the gigs have quite a history. And but at this particular time, it was all racing, and the racing uh, competitors came not only from England but from Holland and other 
places in Europe, um, but not from the United States. So Mike and uh, started that. So um, I said to myself, well, maybe I'll take some pictures. And I took my cameras. You know, at that time, everybody had big, heavy cameras. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite the era of the iPhone. And so, and I had cameras with interchangeable lenses, and I was young enough that I could carry all this stuff around. And uh, I went over there, and then I said to myself, I ought to write about this. They had these observer boats while the, while the uh, racing was going on. Now, the racing went on in, in, a, in a windswept sea sometimes. It was very cold sometimes. And the observer boats were packed with people who were looking on the, uh, on the races because the observer boats went along with the, with the racing gigs. And I'm there with my camera. And, you know, in an atmosphere like that, you just lose your caution. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jordan, the best way I can tell you, my life was threatened that particular day. I easily could have been wiped out. And what ha- and it, it, I think that I could not possibly explain it better than I wrote it up. Well, we'd love to hear it. And uh, it, would g- it gives people a chance to decide for themselves if I have some worthwhile writing skills, it, they'll be able to tell me whether I brought to life this particular instant. That could have resulted in my death. So I entitled it Water. This is in my memoir, Living My Life Backwards. Mm -hmm. Water is life. Water is death. No one doubts that the prime natural force of our existence on earth, for good or bad, is water. It giveth and taketh away, to put it in biblical language. It almost took me away. I have already told of my adventure in the silly isles in the Rohad story above. Armed with my trusty Nikon, with its interchangeable lenses and weighty accessories, I was determined to capture as many images as possible. In fact, as I recall it, I took around 900 photos. At 67, I was still athletic enough to handle this uh, self-assignment, but past my top days for sure. When a chance came to get action photos of the races from a crowded observer boat running alongside the gigs, I took it. What fun! Cool, but not quite freezing, the wind in our faces, the sea running high, and other observers and photographers creating a din, the voices from the gigs and those on shore all created a never-to-be-forgotten atmosphere of blood sport and the rush of blood to the head, decidedly not an atmosphere engendering caution, quite the opposite, hardly knowing it, I arose in the swaying boat, gyrating my body to and fro, up and down, better to get the shots I wanted, caution thrown to the winds. Was it the sudden pitch of the boat? Was it my own lack of balance? Who knows? Next thing I knew, I was falling toward the left side of the small craft, toward the engulfing sea, the engulfing water. My body must already have reached at least a 45-degree angle from the horizontal when I felt the tight and sure grasp of arms around my midsection, restraining and preventing my inundation. I turned to see my savior. She was a smiling and strapping young Dutch girl, undoubtedly a gig racer herself. I thanked her profusely, of course, 
All that time, I thought what a disaster this might have been. I could easily have hit my head on the gunnels on the way out, combining unconsciousness with my heavy attire and accessories to propel me downward to the bottom of the sea and death and not upward to the surface and life. Well, here I am to tell the tale. Another close call. May I interject and suggest Melville couldn't have written it any better. <laughs> well, <I'd... laughs> I'm, I'm just uh, having fun with it. Well, well done. But yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. The weather at the time, do you recall, was it raining, misty, obviously windy, windswept waves? Well, it was very windy and the, the waves were, were, were pretty high. I don't think it was raining at the time, but it was, the water must have been really freezing. I think that anybody going into that water would have been shocked by the temperature. Oh, hypothermia quickly. So this Dutch girl, you never forget the one who saves you. I can't even bring her face to mind, but I know that she was strong. Mm. And she, like some of these tennis players today, she probably was 5'8 or 10 or something like that. So talk a little bit about Mike and his particular efforts that day. Well, I, I just told you a little about, uh, uh, a little about uh, Kathy. Mike was a, a really gentle giant, as we say, a very, very nice man. And he and his father had built gig-raising boats, but the English were very careful not to give them the exact specifications. <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was a going friendship and alliance between Mike and the English folks. Finally, they did give them the right specifications. I wrote all about that in that first mm. uh, thing that I wrote, uh, that first story that I wrote, uh, which was Row Hard, No Excuses, which I thought was a great way to... Uh, to express what they were doing because what I found on that trip, uh, and I wrote about this in uh, the story, was that the gentlemen that did this were all ordinary guys. You know, one guy did this, one guy did that. They None of them made a lot of money. And they all expressed themselves the same way. I interviewed each one of them and not in the company of others, just by themselves. And they all said the same thing, which essentially was, well, we do it because uh, not so much to win, but because of the friendship and the camaraderie. They use that word all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, because uh, uh, we really uh, were like a team, and it just was fun to do it together. And Mike was a great leader. And uh, Mike's father, who died shortly afterwards, was a great man. And uh, that's why we did it. Yeah. And you know something, uh, uh, Jordan? It all rubbed off on me. Um, I really liked being with these guys and uh, doing things with them. And we went to a dance uh, in the town. I still remember the pretty girl up there that I was sorry I didn't ask to dance with her. And uh, the, uh, uh, you know, Mike had, Mike had said to me at one point on a previous trip that he made over there, he said, you can't believe these people on St. Mary's. That's the main island in the Sillies. They're so friendly. They're willing to do whatever you want to do. And, you know, we had fish and chips on the square and uh, went to the dance. And um, after the races were over, I myself, or by myself, went over to an adjoining island that was less populated and had a high hill on it. And when I got to the top of the hill, it was very, the wind was blowing. It was very exciting. It was adventurous. And nobody could hear what I was saying. And I yelled epithets to the wind and uh, said whatever I wanted to say. Well, and, would you say, Larry, that you understood the the relationship that these people have with nature, their sense of 
tempting fate, but also respecting nature. Talk a little bit about what you took away from that. Well, yeah, I think these people did because, you know, they live under conditions that, you know, this, these are islands and they're off the main uh, part of England. And uh, I think that um, I did buy uh, some pictures that came in a group from uh, uh, maybe you'd call it an antique shop, but more like a, uh, uh, a place where you can get memories or things that remind you of the sillies. And these were pictures of the Silly Islands, now the rock formations and the things that grow out there and the birds and the nature and the silence. Yeah, I think these people had to respect nature because mm-hmm. uh, they, they you couldn't make a lot of money out there. And um, it was not on the economy. It was a, like a separate existence out there. Mm. Can you talk about the publication then of your first work that was was accepted and uh, how you how that came about well it came about because when i got back i decided that i would take all the interviews that i did and uh and i would try and form a story from it now uh i did form a story Roe had no excuses and uh there was a, there's a well-known guy that's still putting out this book called messing around in boats mm-hmm. bob hicks and i sent it to him and with with some of the pictures so what he did was he said, I'm going to make this the cover story. <laughs> wow. I'm going to put the picture on the cover. I mean, it was a national, you know, it didn't have a huge, uh, it had sort of a specialized audience, but there were quite a few people that uh, that looked at messing around on boats and still do. And uh, so he, he, he thought the story was not short, not terribly long, but... You know, three, four thousand words. Some I forget exactly what, but um, it's printed in my memoir, and I would say that uh, that was quite a compliment. And um, so he printed the story, he with four or five of the pictures, and uh, gave it a really uh, great write-up. Now, the proof of the pudding for me was that uh, Kathy's sister, Janice, um, who was a different type than Kathy altogether. And worked for Herb Schwartz, that we, who we've mentioned before, an attorney in my building that I did the I Am Curious Yellow Case with later. We'll talk about that soon. Um, yeah. yeah. He, um, as a matter of fact, um, she was kind of critical of me in certain ways. Um, you know, you talked about me being edgy. Um, she thought I was a bit edgy. So, uh, but, you know, she was very interested in the story and uh, because it had to do with her sister and her brother-in-law. So I said, well, Janice, I said, uh, you know, did you read that? She said, yeah. I said, well, what would you think of Roe had no excuses? She said, I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> you impressed her. Good for you. <laughs> I, said, I said to myself, Janice thinks I wrote a story <laughs> that's wonderful. It's amazing what a byline will do every once in a while. <laughs> hey, let's do a follow-up because the next year, and I'm, I'm anxious to know about this, the next year, 1999, there are gig races near Amsterdam, and you're part of that too. What happened, pray tell? Well, the gig race championships um, were in Muiden, M-U-I-D-E-N, which is a town about 10 or 12 miles outside of Amsterdam. Now, when I went there, I stayed uh, with a couple in Amsterdam on one of the canals right near the center of the city. Now, they spoke very good English. They expected me to show up with my wife, but I had traveled alone on that one. And uh, they were wonderful people. He was a teacher. She was quite beautiful, very nice. And uh, he and I attended a rock concert one night, and we uh, 
because he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go to this rock concert over the, over the, and it wasn't far away. And we all young people. And we, we and he was he probably at the time he was like 50 or something like that. And uh, so you were 67 or 68. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, in that range, yeah, in that range. And um, so as so we went to the rock concert together. I think maybe we had. You know, some brandy before. I mean, I forget exactly, but we sat up in the balcony and uh, we had a great time. It was a terrific concert, and um, we loved it. And um, so, as I say, he was a very nice man, and she used to serve me breakfast every morning. He'd go off to his teaching duties, and she was um, she would uh, make a wonderful breakfast for me. But every day uh, after breakfast, I would take the bus out to my den to be with my folks who were racing. And um, that was uh, – they ran into some – now, there was tough weather. And um, the girls of the Rohard No Excuses gang uh, had to be turned back because they were rowing into danger and not making any headway. And they were very upset when they came back to the uh, shore. And I had my camera ready. And one of the girls got off the boat, and her husband was waiting for her. And she was crying, and they embraced. And you know how it is with a photographer. You're always waiting for that hmm. key moment. And I took a picture that turned out just wonderfully. The, mon- it's gonna, it's, the money shot, we call it, it. It's going to be in the memoir. And it, it just captures the whole thing. And I really like that photograph. So uh, we had a great time out there. We went out on one of these big barges to see the Zyda Z, you know, because— the whole history of uh, Netherlands is the, the the name tells you Netherlands. A lot of it was under the sea. They had That's to right. reclaim it from the sea. Um, at one time, Holland was took its own turn as the biggest power and the strongest power in Europe. So that um, they're they're quite some people. And one thing I remember, um, Jordan, about that trip was that when it was all they're great hosts. The 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 people in Holland. And of course, they were, uh, a lot of the people in Holland were very instrumental in harboring Jewish people threatened by the Holocaust. Um, so that um, they, ha- they have a great history in that respect. So anyway, they had a big party in a tent. Must have been a thousand people there. All the people that took place in the, uh, in the uh, gig racing. Mm-hmm. And um, so we we had you know we never won any of the races, but we did we did much better than the Americans were supposed to do. So everybody was carrying on and drinking beer and yelling and screaming, but unlike a lot of mob scenes where you feel that there might be a threat or somebody will get out of control, nobody got out of control. Everybody was having fun, yelling, screaming, but you you felt safe, mm. and there were men, women. And at one point, I mean, I mean, I got into it naturally, and I and I grabbed an American flag and I jumped up on the table <laughs> and I was waving the American flag. How Olympic of you! Yes, <laughs> over yes. my head, and and somebody took a picture of that. And um, so anyway, on that one, I wrote another story for Bob Hicks. I like it, Larry. I'm going to put it on the front page again. Great. So that uh, and. Um, Who? Well, it's just so interesting that you know here you are, an attorney in Boston. Uh, involved in government, involved in uh, town affairs, you know, Mr. White Collar. And you're out there on boats taking pictures of other guys rowing their hearts out, gals too. Uh, it's kind of nice where life takes us, uh, wherever that headwind blows. 
Um, yeah, I don't think that a person should have. Well, it all depends on the person. I mean, I'm adventurous by spirit, not so much physically. Certainly, I take stands morally, but um, but even you know, I would not climb Mount Everest, for example. That may be a little too dangerous for me. Although guys, I know you're more of a Kilimanjaro type <laughs> in my in my book. No, but it's 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 such a great recollection, and it's part of the memoir because it should be. It's it's different. It's taking. Uh, it, well, if I may use the phrase, pushing caution to the wind for a time and having some fun. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said in the story about almost falling off the boat, you do throw caution to the wind. You've got to be very careful. And even now, uh, that is even more true as I'm in my 90s. And plainly, I couldn't do the kind of stuff that I just told you about. Uh, not that I'm falling off my feet, but on the other hand, you know, balance becomes an issue as you get older and uh, – uh, I think that there are less things that you can do physically, and you have to be cautious. And you've got to remember that at times, you, you the, the elements around you f- sort of push you in the direction of not being cautious. And another thing um, that I want to mention about that whole adventure over there was last time, um, Jordan, we spoke about why I wrote the memoir. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I've said to you privately that the— why I wrote the memoir is is a very much um, related um, uh, to the to part three of the memoir, which is "Row Hard, No Excuses" that we're just talking about, and very important in my life story. You might ask me why that is so. Well, we covered a little bit of it. Uh, when I uh, just told you about how wonderful it was to be with all these guys, and I took the pictures and I put them together in a in a book of about two hundred photos, and I sent them to uh, Team Sakewish, they call themselves, which is a, a town or a down near Plymouth, Massachusetts, uh, and uh, so that the friendship part meant a great deal to me. And of course, one of the one of the uh, points that I make uh, about my own persona is how very important friendship is in my life. But the other thing that makes them, makes it so related is that that was the beginning of my writing career, as I've just related. And um, so why I wrote this memoir um, and beginning to, and, and having that um, first writing experience, uh, you know, turned my life around. I mean, I, how did I know, except in retrospect, of course, I didn't know it at the time, when Kathy walked into my office that day and I said, I'd like to go on that trip, I really was making a life decision to not abandon the law, I never did that, but to have a second career. And that's why it was so important to me. And very interestingly, Jordan, preparing for this meeting with you today, and it's always fun to meet with you, and I'm, you'll do some talking later, I'm sure. I'm sort of hogging. The, no, it's okay. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, I, so I said to myself, I read last night um, why I wrote this memoir, which uh, after introducing my wife Lois, who's sitting outside this room right now uh, where we're recording this, I think what I had in mind was that I did not say in why I wrote this memoir, as I did say on the first podcast that we did together, Jordan, that— Helping people find a new direction for their life, even when they're 80 and 90, is something that was important in my writing the memoir. And I made a note to myself, and you really stirred this in my head, Mm. um, that I'm going to add to the memoir, among other things, to that part, 
that uh, why did I write this memoir, that part of it is because my experience in old age has been so terrific, and I don't think I'm so different than anybody else, that maybe telling about my experience can help other people to abandon looking at the television all the time. I mean, I watch Red Sox games sure, all sure, the time. Sure. And, and, uh, no, I, I think you're right. I think uh, a takeaway for me, because uh, you're the same age as my dad, a uh, takeaway for me is that things evolve and our lives change physically more than, than any other way. It's still a life, action and excitement and adventure. The adventure continues. And uh, whether it was 35 years ago on a, on a boat in the middle of a tossed sea or whether you're sitting down at 90 and doing a podcast series that's as hot as anybody else's, the adventure continues. Yeah, I mean, it can be a simple, you know, not everybody is a writer, but everybody can write. And, uh, you know, people who have families and uh, stuff like that, what's wrong with them just sitting down and writing for their own uh, Children or grandchildren, their own life. Absolutely a great idea. We've got lots to talk about with you. The legacy of Larry is one that's ongoing. The legacy is being uh, built new and fresh every single day, and we've got more to do when we return. Larry, as always, my thanks. Well, thanks to you, Jordan, as always. Um, We've built a great friendship just doing this. We were friends before. We're closer friends now, and I I tell Lois all the time, if, you know, Jordan takes takes me in directions, I don't know where he's going to take me, <laughs> but I love it, you know. So take me wherever you want, Jordan. I'm, your, <laughs> I'm with you. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.